listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Someone New by Megan Wren, a band from Cincinnati. Megan Wren is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you hear the rest of that excellent song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, we're going to go to Dayton with this case tonight and the story of a young girl who seemingly walked into oblivion more than 50 years ago. Hmm. It's hard to imagine how someone can just vanish without a trace, but that's exactly what happened to Sharon Lynn Pretorius, a 13-year-old newspaper girl for the Dayton Journal-Herald, who went to collect on her route and never even made it to her first customer. It was September 28, 1973, when Sharon disappeared in a case I've seen described as the most intensive missing child investigation in Dayton police history. Sharon was a smart, talented, busy, hardworking girl. I have no doubt she would have done something extraordinary with her life. She was so bright she skipped eighth grade at Cornell Heights School and had entered Fairview High School that fall. At the age of 13, she had just started her freshman year of high school. You know, you not only have to be smart to do that, but it's kind of brave to start high school at 13. Yeah, that's, I couldn't imagine doing that. I'd be a little unnerved. Sharon was the third of six children of Dr. Walter and Mary Carol Pretorius, living in a historic section of town known as Dayton View. Her older brothers, Doug and Richard, were 17 and 15 years old, and she had three younger siblings, 11-year-old Brian, 9-year-old Mary Beth, and 6-year-old David. That was a full house. It was a full house, and Sharon's dad died in 1967. That left her mom supporting the entire family with her job as the librarian at Roosevelt High School. But there was never any question that big family was going to need Sharon to step up. By 1973, being the oldest daughter, she started assuming many mature responsibilities, helping to look after her younger siblings and maintaining the house. Well, she took her responsibilities very seriously, and friends said Sharon never even stepped outside the box. She dressed modestly, usually in long jeans or long shorts. She was tall for her age, five foot seven inches, but there was no denying she was still a child. She wore her long brown hair and pigtails and never wore makeup. She hadn't even had her first boyfriend yet. Sharon was quiet, but more the shy type, not the standoffish type. Classmates said she was friendly. She was a musician, too. She was in the flute section of the Fairview Marching Band, and she was taking piano lessons. Now, September 28 was a Friday, and looking forward to the weekend, Sharon jumped out of bed at dawn and dressed for the final day of school. She pulled on a yellow long sleeve sweater blouse and her usual blue jeans and slipped on her white gym shoes. School was just the beginning of her schedule. 
After classes were done, she returned to her home on Cornell Drive at Canfield Avenue, then walked to the home of her piano teacher. And her day was still not done. After that lesson, she walked back home, grabbed her newspaper route collection book, and hit the streets again. It was just after 5 p.m. Frankly, I'm not sure if she had even had dinner yet. She didn't say anything as she left, but her brother saw her collection book and knew what she was doing. But Sharon never made it back home. Her mom watched the clock, wondering, waiting. But darkness fell, and there was no way Sharon would have voluntarily been outside when the streetlights came on. At 10.30 p.m., her mother called police. Now, in 1973, there was no such thing as an amber alert. And that old rule where you have to wait 24 hours before police would begin a search, that was in existence for children as well as adults. Today, we know the first 24 hours of a child's disappearance is crucial. But back then, by default, many youngsters, even at 13, were considered possible runaways and given time to return home on their own volition. Those who knew her said there is no way she ran away. A cousin who had stayed with a Pretorius family that summer said she had confessed to Sharon that sometimes she just wanted to run away. And Sharon told her she never felt that way herself. And so Sharon's disappearance didn't even make the newspapers until two days later on September 30. By then, police said they had already questioned more than 250 people in the neighborhood, systematically reaching out to people from Wolf Creek on the south to Salem Avenue in the north, from Gettysburg Avenue on the west to Salem on the east. The media attention worked and brought out the first promising witness. A woman told police she saw a man and a woman struggling at the corner of Cornell and Philadelphia Drives late Friday afternoon. The time frame fit, and Sharon was definitely tall enough to be mistaken for an adult. The witness didn't watch the scene long enough to know if the woman had gotten into the car. Still, police now had a car to look for. A dark blue 1965 Ford sedan. And a suspect. 30 to 40 years old, white, six feet tall with a medium build, and a full beard. He wore blue jeans, a dirty white t-shirt, a waist-length brown jacket, and a hat with a thin brown trim. It was still astounding that everything seemed to have happened so fast. Sharon's nearest newspaper customer was just across the street. It seemed logical that she would start her collections there. But she didn't. As a matter of fact, the Journal Herald Circulation Department called every customer on Sharon's route and found she hadn't visited any of them. And Cornell was a busy street. At 5 p.m., you might even expect higher than normal traffic as the workday came to an end and people made their way home, children returning from after school activities, and people just generally getting a head start on the weekend and yet she apparently had been snatched in the light of day. People from the neighborhood helped in any way they could. They formed teams and canvassed the area. Nothing of hers ever surfaced. The band she belonged to was supposed to perform at Wayne Township High School the next evening, but their performance was canceled to free up more people for the search. Members of the Pretorius Church, Messiah Lutheran on Gettysburg Avenue, 
gathered to pray for her return. Twenty neighbors pooled their money, $50 each, to start a $1,000 reward pool. The Journal Herald chipped in another 1000 Students at Fairview and Roosevelt High Schools and Cornell Heights Middle School collected money as well. Within a week, the reward had grown to nearly 4000 Eight days after Sharon's disappearance, police went public pleading for new leads. They had exhausted every tip that had come in and had nowhere else to turn. They had checked out many cars that fit the description of the car from that witness, the dark Ford sedan. They even found a man wanted for indecent exposure who drove such a car, but nothing led anywhere. It was an era when there was no internet, not even a national database for missing children. For Sharon, Dayton police had to prepare 500 circulars and mail them to law enforcement agencies across the country. Police were losing hope for a fast resolution. Eight months after Sharon's disappearance, Dayton Police Lieutenant Harry Henry said, We usually feel that if something doesn't break within a few weeks, then it is a matter of a long wait for something to turn up. On April 15, 1974, a body was found floating in the Great Miami River. Police Sergeant Robert Hahn, a neighbor and friend of the Pretorius family who worked many off-duty hours in search of Sharon, went to see the body while Sharon's family waited at home for word. It wasn't her. It would take a couple of weeks of running sketches in the newspaper to learn that girl's identity. It was 18-year-old Deborah Sue Osmond. Even her death was a bit of a mystery, too. The coroner determined she had drowned, but couldn't say whether it was accidental or not. In June of 1974, police were willing to use psychic help. They checked the tip of a clairvoyant and searched a house described by her, but they didn't find Sharon or any evidence of her. In July of 1976, about $1,200 of the reward fund was dissolved and given to Sharon's mom. She, in turn, handed it over to the Dayton Citizens Information Reward Fund to benefit other cases. The mother agreed with investigators who did not expect Sharon would ever be walking back through the door. I sort of assumed that she is dead, her mom told a reporter. That same month came another tip, this time from Brookville Police Chief George Brown. Brown said he had an informant that was reliable in the past, but only had heard secondhand that a young girl had been buried at a house on Tyson Avenue in West Dayton. The house had already been raised. The informant didn't know the name of the girl he had learned about conversationally, but the circumstances seemed to fit Sharon's story. And so Dayton police searched the site, getting a warrant and using a city backhoe to break through a concrete slab, digging up six feet of soil beneath it. They found nothing. But police couldn't let this one go. The following year, in April of 1977, the backhoe was pulled out again for the same foundation of the same house. But they got the same results. Nothing. And so the family had to live with a not knowing. 
In a 2003 story by the Dayton Daily News, Mary Carol Pretorius said a friend of Sharon's told her of a dream she had. The girls were back at Cornell Heights in the gym. Sharon was apart from her friend, sitting in the bleachers with some new, unrecognizable friends, talking happily and oblivious to old acquaintances. Mrs. Pretorius said she took that as a sign. I think that it means that she is fine, she is happy, and she is in a new place where we can't communicate with her right now, she told a reporter. It was that kind of faith that had given her strength throughout the ordeal. Mrs. Pretorius's minister recalled that a week after Sharon disappeared, her mother was ironing clothes and singing church hymns. Two weeks after her disappearance, she returned to work. Mrs. Pretorius recalled how she had to dig deep for that strength. In 1998, she told a Dayton reporter that a week after her daughter vanished without a trace, she walked into her daughter's empty bedroom. I kneeled down and I pounded my hands on her bed and said, Lord, I will love you if my daughter is dead, and I will love you if she has returned. Then I had to pause, but I finally added, and I will love you, Lord, if it happens that I never know. That didn't mean she never let loose. A year after her daughter died, she told the reporter she took flowers to her church and laid them on the altar. She never said it aloud, but she considered the service that day to be a personal memorial to Sharon. After the service, she went to a back room of the church to pick up the flowers and screamed. I don't know if anyone heard or not, she said, or if it was inside. That was the beginning of healing for her, saying the Lord had given her the grace to move on. Dayton reporter Dale Huffman once asked Sharon's siblings to share how her absence affected them. Sharon's oldest sibling, Doug, was 42 in 1998 and a minister in Belleville, Ohio. He said the experience had taught him how important funerals were in giving closure to families. It pained Sharon's family that her disappearance denied her a funeral. That was rectified in July of 2006, when Sharon should have been 46 years old. The family took out an obituary in the local paper, saying she was presumed abducted and murdered. Then friends and family gathered at the North Riverdale Lutheran Church on Kurtz Avenue for a memorial service. Former neighbors, classmates, and volunteers who had searched for her came to say goodbye. It's hard to say, but we must face it. Our Sharon is gone forever, her brother said. But her story still hasn't ended. In 2011, police did an extensive search of a five-acre vacant lot at Hoover Avenue and Gunther Street. Acting on a tip, they brought out heavy equipment and cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating laser equipment. They didn't find what they were looking for, but it did inspire the family to offer a new $2,500 reward for information. Still, we're no closer to knowing what happened to Sharon that day in 1973. Yeah, I was looking at a picture of her. She, she could easily be you know, confused as an adult. She was pretty tall, and she definitely had that, that look. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that witness had, had seen her. Right, for sure. And uh, if anybody has any information out there, 
Give uh, Dayton Police a call, 937-333-2677. Any information at all. Uh, well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Well, for tonight's Armchair Detective, we are welcoming back Jana Falkner from the Dayton area. Hi, Jana. Hi. Uh, Jana was our armchair detective on the case of Linda Durth, which was another heartbreaking case uh, involving children. Had you heard of this case before? I had not. I was kind of surprised that I hadn't heard about it, knowing that there had actually been some recent activity in 2011. Yeah, I was really astounded to see in 2011 they were bringing out heavy equipment, the cadaver Mm -hmm. dogs. I'm thinking if you're bringing all of that equipment out, you must have had a really good tip. And I would so love to know like what that tip was. And I agree. I did some research on it. I went to the library and I pulled the microfilms from the papers, the Journal Herald and the Dayton Daily News from 1973 and then also from 1976 and looked at the articles that appeared at that time. I also went to Google Maps and looked at a map of the area of Tyson Avenue and then Hoover and Gunther. And I really think that the 1976 tip of Tyson Avenue, where they went to Tyson Avenue, and then the 2011 Hoover and Gunther search, I really think they're actually the same property because on Google Maps, I was able to look and find the parcel of land that was Hoover and Gunther, which is a vacant lot now. It's about five acres long. And the interesting thing is Tyson Avenue dead ends right into that corner. Wow. So So this is actually three times that they went back Mm -hmm. to that area with backhoes, they must have been really convinced. And the article from 1976 stated that they were in a basement. So they were actually excavating in a basement, not just vacant land. So the house had recently been torn down. It had been torn down two years prior. So in like 74 to 75, it had been torn down and it was no longer there but the basement was still there. And so they were excavating in the basement. I wonder if maybe she had been there, but just had been moved. And the informant didn't realize that the body had been moved, but maybe they Mm -hmm. did have the right place originally. Yeah. Well, in the article from 1976 stated that um, they weren't sure if the informant was talking about her or somebody else. Right. That's true. Yeah, so uh, the informant didn't have a name, but had stated that it was a 13-year-old girl. She's not there anymore if she was there because they've done ground-penetrating radar and cadaver dogs and things like that, and they've not come up with anything. Right. I think about that time period in the 70s, there was so much crime. 
in my research, I came across a document from the Dayton Police Department that has a list of their cold cases from 1940 through 2009. And the 70s had the most unsolved crimes. Really? The decade of, yeah, I was able, it's an Excel document, and I was able to like, um, do some filters on it and like sort it by decade. And so I was looking and the most, the most of the unsolved crimes were in the seventies. And then also it makes me think about like, especially thinking, you know, that here this man and woman were seen struggling on the corner and only one person reports seeing it. Like there was no other corroborating witness to come forward and say, Oh yeah, I saw that too. Right. It was just one person. So it makes me think of the Ketty Genovese um, case from New York City in the late 60s where this girl was raped and murdered in her apartment complex in the hallway and nobody saw anything. Nobody reported it. And, you know, she's screaming and there's all these people and they go, you know, the the police department went and, and asked, did you hear? And it was like, well, yeah, I heard, but I didn't do anything about it. I didn't call or anything. Yeah. So it just makes me think about that kind of thing. Like in that time frame of the 70s, there was a lot of crime happening. So I think people were apathetic to it and didn't pay attention when they saw it. Uh, there it is again. And, you know, no. it, it could also be a case of people not wanting to admit to themselves that they might have had an opportunity to stop something and didn't take advantage of it. At what point do you call the police? You know, you, I, I don't know what kind of struggle she saw. I mean, if you see a man punching a woman or dragging her, yet that's an easy call to make. But if you mm-hmm. see two people that are kind of maybe, you know, tussling with their hands a little bit or something. I mean, it it could be frolicking, you know. It's Mm -hmm. hard to know at what point do you say, I don't know what's happening there. I'm just going to call police and have them ask. It's hard to know. Yeah, or at the very least, stop and say, are you okay? (laughs) There you go. Do you need assistance? Because if you... if. You know, like who, who's to say that if somebody had stopped and and said, are you OK to her that this person who adopt who abducted her, knowing that there's eyes on him, might have stopped and gone away? Absolutely. Good point. See something, say something. At the very least, right. if you're not sure, just stop mm-hmm. and say, are you OK? I did come across a post on Reddit that led me to the Doe Network. There was a post on Reddit that basically was like, do these two people look alike? And one of them was Sharon Pretorius. And then the other one was a Jane Doe that had passed away in 1976 in Michigan. And the story that as that came with the Jane Doe was that she was a 16 year old runaway from Ohio. She had, I guess was done some drugs or something. Somehow she, she ended up dying at the party. Nobody knew her name. They only knew that she said she was 16 and she was from Ohio and the death certificate places her between the ages of 15 and 19 which in 1976 would fit with Sharon Praetorius's age. Right. Um, 
and the girl does look a lot like her. Um, but the Doe Network has said that it isn't her. They, I guess, I don't know if they've done some DNA testing or something, but they have, they have stated that it is not Sharon Pretorius. Okay. But I just thought it was interesting that it kind of, it made me feel good that at least there was some sort of, uh, investigation into it through the pictures and DNA. You know, you but, have to check out even those things because even though mm-hmm. those character traits don't seem to match Sharon, that there might have been drug use, that she might have been a runaway. You don't know what led to that. What if she had been kidnapped and trafficked? And And she ran away from them. And she ran away from them. Or maybe, you know, she was in a situation like that for two or three years and was too embarrassed to turn back home. And maybe they had forced drugs on her to get her, you know, to be compliant. So you do have to check out all of those things. Everything. And I'm with you. I am glad to know that they that they check that thoroughly. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really struck me about this case is Sharon's walking out of the door of her house to go do her newspaper route collection, and she doesn't even make it to her first customer. Does that make it sound like maybe she was being stalked or somebody was ready for her? I mean, that had to happen so fast. Uh, part of me has always felt like it was a crime of opportunity. And then the other true crime person, and I haven't gone this far down the rabbit hole, the the other true crime part of me says, oh, it, it was the people at the first house. <laughs> when I was uh, really young, this was like late 60s, early 70s, there were two girls who were collecting recyclables. And they went to a house and knocked on the door, and the guy in that house killed them both. So, oh. it, you know, you're not far off. I mean, it's certainly possible. You know, her brother brought up a really interesting point that goes back to one of the reasons why I think people who disappear without any explanation can be even harder on a family than murder, and that's that they didn't have the opportunity to give her a funeral, and that there is yeah. a certain amount of closure that comes with that process. Mm-hmm. Did that strike you when he when he mentioned that? It did. And I do I mean, I do like that her family did go go and give her a proper memorial and and funeral so that they had the grieving, you know, they were able to start and end that grieving process. I mean, I don't think it ever it probably had already started obviously since she was gone for so long, but I agree with him. You know, there is something about being missing, having having a child or or family member go missing that you just don't ever get to know what happened. And part of me thinks that it's probably good for her mother and her family to not know what happened to her. Um, they won't have those details of something awful. But at the same time, you don't want to wonder is she out there somewhere? Does she need my help? 
And I, I can see how that would be really difficult. It's really personal how you feel about that situation because I have seen families both ways. I've seen mothers say, I don't want to know what happened to my daughter. I'd like to have her body back. I'd like to give her a proper burial, but I don't want to know the details of it. And then you have others saying, I am tormented by not knowing the details. I need to know what my loved one went through so that I can process it. So it's, yeah, it's a very personal choice for each Mm -hmm. family. A funeral is really also a celebration of a life. And if you're denied the funeral, you're denied the opportunity to recognize that this life also needed to be celebrated. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad, I'm glad that they finally got the chance to to do that. Or take the chance to do that. Especially from what I read about her mother, that it, it seemed like that was really important to her mom to be able to celebrate the life that her daughter had and that was taken from her. Her mother, though, seemed to have a really good uh, perspective and attitude about the whole thing. I was really impressed with her mother's response to her disappearance. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you too because her the way she handled this whole situation was just incredible and I agree what faith and inner strength she had to have yeah so much grace I mean I can't imagine how angry you would be you know knowing somebody has taken your child and and you don't know what happened to them but she just really put all of her trust. Uh, in her face. She did. And, uh, you know, how good for her kids, too, because, you know, she didn't have a husband, but, you know, she was a widow by then. Mm -hmm. And she Mm -hmm. really needed to be strong for her kids. And what a great Mm -hmm. example she set for them. Absolutely. Well, Jana, thank you so much for joining us again. You've definitely given us some things to think about and some information we didn't have. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Megan Wren is the front woman, songwriter, and guitar player of her band of the same name. Inspired by good old classic rock, one reviewer said her spiritual parents are Stevie Nicks and Paul McCartney. So that definitely is uh, my generation of music. Her bandmates include Charlie Andrews on drums, Ryan Shepard on lead guitar, and Jason Snotty on bass. Now, Megan grew up in Cincinnati, picking up the guitar at age 11. She spent her teenage years working at a music store while expanding her own talents, and then she studied music production at Ohio University. Megan lives in Athens now, where she brings it all together, singing, songwriting, performing, engineering, and producing. The band just finished up a busy performance season, but there's still something left on her schedule. You can catch Megan in a solo set on October 19 in Athens at Donkey Coffee. Anyway, learn more about the band at MeganRenMusic.com and be sure to follow the band on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of their song, Someone New. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy! And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.